0: Hello and welcome to the India Energy Hour. I am Sandeep Pai, a former journalist with Hindustan Times and now an energy researcher at the University of British Columbia.
1: And I'm Shreya Jay, journalist with Business Standard Newspaper in Delhi, writing on the energy sector.
0: Together, we are really excited to co-host a new podcast on India's energy transition, the India Energy Hour. This podcast is hosted by 101 Reporters, an innovative news agency that connects grassroots supporters and media houses to bring out untold stories. The show is produced by Tejas, Dayan and Sagar of 101 Reporters.
1: In this podcast, we want to unpack and document India's energy transition. We will interview leading energy, development and climate experts from academia, civil society and the government. Through these interviews, we will explore the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities In the energy transition unfolding in India, we will examine the role of government, finance, social justice, and science. Over time, we will feature other countries of the global south as well.
0: Globally, nearly 2.8 billion people depend on solid fuels such as firewood and biomass for their cooking needs and nearly 1 billion people live without electricity connection. Majority of such people lacking basic energy access reside in African and Asian countries, including India. In the last two decades, India has made substantial progress in enhancing energy access through policies that support greater use of LPG cylinders and by expanding the electricity grid. However, several issues still remain. To understand the Indian and Global Energy Access Challenge and the required interventions, we interviewed two renowned energy access experts, Shalu Agarwal, program lead at the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, and Dr. Hisham Zarifi, associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Over the years, both Shalu and Hisham have independently led numerous studies on energy access in India and in other countries. This is our first episode with two guests. Before we begin, an important disclaimer. Hisham is my PhD supervisor at the University of British Columbia. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Okay, so thank you for joining us, uh, Shalu and Hisham. It's, It's great to have you both. Uh, this is the first time that we are having two guests at our podcast and it is very, very exciting for us to have you both. Uh, energy excess is a very important topic and we can't wait to dwell right into it, uh, but Let's just first start with the introduction. Shalu, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? What did you study? How did you land into this particular sector? And also, what in Energy Excess interests you so much that you have done such brilliant work in it?
2: Uh, thanks, Shreya. And uh, thanks, deep uh, both of you for having me here and inviting me to EnergyR. It's uh, my pleasure and honor to be on this platform along with Hisham. And uh, as for my story, um, I am from Uttar Pradesh in India. I was born and brought up in a town called Mathura. Uh, It's uh, also famously known as the land of Lord Krishna. uh, And it's one of the seven sacred cities in Hinduism. So um, I grew up uh, in a very interesting environment. Uh, It was a joint family setup with many fun festivals, full of colors, uh, music, food. Uh, But, of course, growing up in a small town also meant, uh, you know, one had to often rebel as a girl to seek small freedoms, you know, going out alone uh, with friends in the evening or wearing clothes of choice. But fortunately, uh, education was something that I got a lot of support for uh, from my family as well as freedom for. So um, I was the first person and the girl in my family to uh, do an engineering from an IIT uh, which suddenly exposed me to a very different world. And, you know, uh, my background of growing up in Matra, where we used to see a lot of, you know, uh, access-related challenges. I mean, I I didn't decide to work on access as a child, but uh, those experiences were very real, right? Uh, facing parkers for hours and hours, I mean, eight hours, or even, you know, sometimes for days and uh, studying in... Uh, you know, besides the candlelight and all. I mean, these are stories that I report on, but I've also lived through them. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, uh, studying in IIT gave a great, great exposure. And even as I was taking lessons in electrical and power engineering, I had started to also observe like how many people, uh, you know, just lack access. Uh, we have a lot of technological solutions at our hand, but not everyone has them. So I also started thinking about we need to have more efforts to take those to the people at scale. And in a developing country like India, implementation at scale is generally the forte of the government. So I initially decided to pursue civil services and as I was preparing for it um, for the exam, it also, you know, exposed me to a whole new literature on sustainable development and the role of public policy. So I mean, there were multiple things coming together, and it was also the time when solar had started to pre- gain a lot of policy traction in India. I mean, 2012, 14, right? So when civils didn't happen for me, which I think was uh, fortunate, now uh, I started looking for an opportunity uh, to work on sustainable development, and that's when I. Came across C W and I started to work as a researcher with them. And into my first job, I uh, you know was got the opportunity to, to answer very interesting questions. Like the first one that I was looking at was how big can India go on renewables, and uh, how much money would we need for that. And uh, very incidentally, that work got the traction of the PM's office when the na- new national government had come to the bar and was looking to ramp up india's solar ambition so of course there was a lot of uh, you know uh, advisories happening at that time but uh, as a new researcher you you sort of start to feel the impact that you know evidence based research can have on you know shaping public policies and really convinced me to pursue a career in energy policy research uh, so since then i've been uh, you know uh, working i've worked on various issues uh, like how to scale up solar irrigation in a sustainable manner, how to reform our energy subsidy uh, regime and target them to the right beneficiaries. So incidentally, a lot of my work had this element of, uh, you know, distributive justice and, you know, addressing the equity issues, uh, I mean, pertaining to energy access. So um, I I went for a master's after that. I studied at University College London. There again, I... Had the opportunity to uh, work with Professor Yakov Muluketa, uh, and you know we were together trying to answer how could Ethiopia leverage solar irrigation to overcome food security challenge. So I mean again a uh, lot of things were coming together. So after my master's I got this opportunity you know to uh, work very directly on energy access and had you know could design and run the survey that we talk about. Uh, so it was a, I think a combination of inclination, history, and. Uh, right
0: opportunities that got me out that's that's really really fascinating I mean your journey is uh really interesting because you have some lived experience and you know I think most kids like us who have grown up in India in those days have uh, studied uh, you know next to a candle and I mean in those days I used to really enjoy playing with a candle but you know it, it's kind of <laughs> you think about it and you reflect that uh later which is really interesting uh, great. Uh, so let's move on to Hisham. I mean, uh, so Hisham is my supervisor, of course, uh, as I said before uh, in the podcast while introducing him. Um, so when I actually came to to st- st- do my PhD, I actually approached Hisham to study energy access. It's a different story that I am now studying completely different stuff. But because Hisham's lab and many of the students In the lab, study energy access. I have sort of been at the horizons of this topic, learning about different peoples. uh, And so it has been a very big learning experience for me. Uh, And so, uh, like, I really think Hisham is truly a global expert on this topic. And so uh, I think it'd be great to know your journey, you know, your story. Some of it I know, but I think our listeners would love to know. You know, how did you get interested in this topic and what did you study and what's your real story and like, how did you become an expert on this topic?
3: Well, thank you for that uh, very generous uh, introduction. And, and it is uh, really a great pleasure to, to, um, to be on this podcast with, with uh, the three of you. Um, so I guess I don't know how far you want to go back. It's been a meandering journey. So if you want on the personal side, you know, I, I, was, I was born in Morocco um i have one moroccan parent my father and uh, and an american parent um uh my mother and uh in addition to having parents from two different nationalities they come from two different religious traditions so my father comes from a muslim family my mother from a jewish family uh which jokingly by by religious law makes me both 100% muslim and 100% jewish because one goes from the father one goes from the mother um But, uh, you know, we then immigrated to Canada uh, when I was very young, three and a half. So I grew up in Canada for the most part and typical Canadian uh, immigrant experience in many, many ways. Um, With my father working all different kinds of jobs, my mother working all different kinds of jobs um, to to make a life for us in in this country. Um, And uh, so then I, I eventually i won't get into the whole story of how i ended up there i went i went to a very small school in the united states initially um to study both physics and religion i wanted to be a cosmologist um i wanted to study the origins of the universe and i wanted to study the origins of the universe from a physics perspective but i also want to understand um people's stories about how the the the, the, the universe started which is usually through religion um, and so i was studying both of those uh, but i was also extremely I was politically active. I've always had a political uh, interest in, in, in politics. I'm going to date myself now. This is right sort of end of the Cold War, um, early 90s. Um, and I, uh, in my third year, I had a bit of a uh, crisis of what do I do? Um, because I kind of felt like I, I was loving the physics that I was studying and the religion that I was studying. Uh, But I felt like I could do something different with my life with those skills. And so I I dropped down to a religion minor instead of a major, and I added in a political science, a more international relations type um, minor, um, because I felt like one of the things I was really interested in is what was happening with the end of the Cold War and the world was awash in nuclear weapons and what was going to happen with that. And and physics was something, since I had physics, maybe I could do something that worked more on, on, on nuclear stuff. Um, so I got a fellowship to go work at a really small NGO run by uh, um, uh, Dr. Arjun Mukherjani, uh who is originally from, from India, and uh, that was really amazingly eye-opening for me. Uh, this was a small nonprofit where we really did kind of technical work around nuclear issues, particularly around the, the health and environmental effects of nuclear weapons production. But working really closely with community organizations, uh, both in the United States, uh, this is this just outside Washington, D.C. We were based um, as well as around the world. And so working with people who had for many years not known that, for example, there was uranium in their well water from the local uranium processing facility for the weapons complex, right, um, and, and as well, and you had people who were like that in like rural Ohio, but then you also had these like very progressive lefty activist groups around the, you know, often around like from the Bay Area around the nuclear labs, and it was a really interesting, fascinating group of people to, to really work with, and, and I learned a lot about kind of the importance of, of working with communities Uh, and working with people and respecting the knowledge that they bring and the experiences that they bring, even though I was supposedly the technical expert, I just, I had had an undergraduate degree in physics, right, you know, but I was a technical expert. Um, You know, I did go back and get a a master's of applied chemistry, went back and working for the same organization. I now sit on their board, in fact. Um, But after a few years, I decided I I wanted to go back and get my PhD uh, for a whole host of reasons did not intend to be an academic, um, told my PhD supervisor I had no intention of being an academic. I was not here to do that. I was here to get my PhD. I was going to go and I was going to do a bunch of other interesting things. Um, that, of course, didn't quite work out the way I intended. Uh, and so I did my PhD in engineering and public policy. And I really was looking at questions around the reliability of decentralized electric power systems versus centralized electric power systems when those systems were under really high stress conditions. I initially started thinking about this in conflict areas, when the power system itself becomes a target of conflict, of war. I was thinking about places like Yugoslavia, the Gaza Strip, uh, places like I actually spent uh, three months during my PhD in the Palestinian territories, interviewing people in the Palestinian Energy Authority and other people like that. Uh, to understand the situation better. But it also applied to places where, for financial and other reasons, the power system was just not well-maintained. Places like rural India, right? And uh, for a whole host of reasons, that, that PhD ended up being all mathematical modeling. Uh, it's all done in MATLAB. Uh, modeling the reliability of these different types of centralized systems under under and then adding stress into the reliability models to see what happened and, and whatnot. But I was like, you know, this is not really what I wanted to do, um, and so I convinced uh, through my, my supervisor. I, I met um, a uh, my supervisor was, was uh, two supervisors, uh, Alex Farrell, and uh, passed away, and um, Hadi Dalal Tabadi, who is also here at U- University of British Columbia now, but back then was at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, uh, and they introduced me to uh, a professor at Stanford by the name of David Victor, and uh, David took a flying leap of faith on me and gave me a postdoc and just said, yeah, you know, uh, go do what you wanna do, which was I wanted to study the reasons why, despite the fact, even at that time, so this was, this was about 2004, at that time, the landscape around um, you know, the quote unquote developing world was littered with failed small scale energy projects. Uh, with some success ones, but lots of failures. And, and the question I was asking myself was, why? I mean, we knew the technology. It wasn't the technology, right? And so I was convinced it was basically institutions and business models. And so he gave me two years to go around the world. And I went to Cambodia and Brazil and India and China, and a bunch of other places to try to get information about all these various systems and try to understand like, what was going on, why were some of them successful and some of them um, failing? Um, and that was a, a fascinating two years, I ended up in the book that I wrote on rural electrification. Um, and then I came to UBC, I got a professorship here at UBC, where I've been since 2006, um, you know, continuing to work on uh, energy access. Um, and uh, one of my early PhD students, uh, Reza Kalsari, uh got involved in a project in India, and um I also got involved in a different project in India through some other colleagues of mine, um, and that just really started my time spent working in India. And, and so I spent um, over a decade, you know, working on and running projects uh, on energy access in India. Both initially, um, actually, uh, I continue to be around mainly around um, clean cooking and, and, and cookstoves. Um, you know, but it, but it's funny sometimes I go back and I, th- I think back. You know, I don't have you know, I grew up in Canada. I, I grew up with a house with, you know, electricity that was pretty reliable, um, except if it was a bad thunderstorm. And I grew up in a house where, you know, we could, we had multiple cooking devices and they worked and you just turned them on and they weren't spewing stuff into our, into our house. But then I think back to, you know, going back to Morocco sometimes and, and, and thinking back to my grandmother, for example, when people talk about, oh, you know, people can just switch, right. And people will just, you know, cook with gas, they can cook with this and And all that. And we talk about sometimes in the work that we do about behavior and behavior change and norms and customs and culture around food and everything. And I think back to my grandmother. I I came from a pretty wealthy family back in Morocco. My my parents gave all that up when they moved to Canada um, a lot. Um, But my family back in Morocco was pretty wealthy. And so if I went to visit my grandparents, it was in a big house um, and uh, with a full modern kitchen. And yet, my grandmother, if she was cooking certain foods, um, particularly kebabs, I remember, well, that had to be done over charcoal. And so she would go to the front hall foyer and open the window and open the back patio window to let the breeze go through. She'd pull out a little stool and she'd sit there and she'd cook these. There was a range. There was a gas stove in the kitchen. Worked perfectly fine, but no, right? And so... You know, I think back to those things. I think back to the fact that the bread was always, always fresh, and the bread was always fresh because she would prepare dough, um, or well, like I said they're rich, they had a couple of maids, one of the maids would prepare dough very early in the morning, before I was even up, that dough would be collected by somebody who went around the neighborhood who would take it to a wood-fired bakery down the street, right, where it would get baked and brought back to our house, um, you know, and it makes a difference. Right? And so I think, so, you know, while I never grew up with those kinds of experiences of the day-to-day of it, you know, I think back on it, and, you know, and that's, and, and and the strength of sort of those um, practices, right? And how persistent they are. And that has often affected sort of how I think about that. So, you know, I guess in terms of my own work around this, it's it's been that combination of thinking about community and thinking about the people in those communities. And, and way back to my early history of working with communities And then through thinking about the agency of people and what it is that they want, right? Um, And that's what's driven a lot of my work.
1: That's an amazing introduction to the topic itself. You know, you mentioned about behavior there. That plays a great role, I believe, in energy access. Even if you provide people with a lot of options, as you said, uh, their behavior or the culture of food dynamics are actually does impact uh, access to energy so so let me now then quickly uh, ask the first question to you that what do you think uh, you know about energy access challenge around the world it is considered to be a cornerstone of development uh, in 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 uh, economies so if you can describe to us between clean cooking and access to electricity while explaining the challenge uh, to energy access
3: okay so let's start with so let's start with electricity um you know, it's it's not that hard to to sort of distill down that challenge because what you have is uh, an infrastructure, which is if you do it the way it has been done for decades in the OECD, the, 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 the richer economies, that's large centralized infrastructure, right? It's big power plants, it's power lines, it's distribution lines. Well, that stuff is really expensive, right? And in order to make that work, you need to have a certain density of demand and people who can afford to pay for that electricity. You don't have that in large parts of the world, right? And so um, at the same time, you also, even in urban areas, sometimes simply don't have um, the affordability question comes into play for people can, whether people can afford the electricity um, or whatnot. So what do you have? You have about a billion people almost who don't have access to electricity, right? Um, you've got another, and the numbers range quite widely, but but at least a billion. I'm going to say at least a billion more who have access to very unreliable electricity, right? Because it's not just a technological problem; it's an institutional problem. And so the institutions that have been set up for electricity in many countries are just not fit for purpose, and so we end up with really bad reliability problems. And so. That is sort of the the core of of the challenge around electricity is how do you make electricity available to people when they are far from the existing infrastructure, very dispersed, low densities, low affordability, right? Um, And so that's the core of that problem in many ways. Um, The core of the, the cooking problem is different, right? Because the technologies are not necessarily all that expensive. Sure, piped gas is expensive potentially, right? But an LPG stove is not terribly expensive, and yet it still remains unaffordable, right? So it's not terribly expensive for us, but when we're talking about again rural low-income communities in sub-Saharan Africa and rural India, right, that gas is exp- that stove initially is expensive, and the the refills, the, the purchase of the fuel, and you're comparing it often against what is a monetarily free fuel, right? It's go out and collect dung, go out and collect agricultural residues, go out and collect wood, right? And so that's a really tough ask for low-income households to say, go from this thing, which is monetarily free, and and go to the thing where you have to actually use your limited budgetary resources in order to, to change that, right? And we get into all kinds of questions around, that brings us into all kinds, of, of really complicated questions around intra-household equity and decision-making and who in the household has, is affected and who in the household has the decision-making authority. It brings us into behavior change around food and food customs. Here's even a really, really simple one. If you come from a community in which you have, you have seen everybody in front of you, cook squatting down on the floor, LPG requires that the stove be elevated up above the gas cylinder in order to be safe. That means you have to, A, build a counter because you may not have a counter in your kitchen, and B, have people stand up to cook, which is something that they've never done. Their, Their mother never did. Their grandmother never did, right? So that behavior change becomes really, really important as well. And so I actually think that in many ways, the clean cooking problem is actually harder than the electricity problem. And that's why we see an, still two and a half billion people who rely on biomass for cooking and heating, and there's another number who rely on burning coal, right? It, it's it's a tough, tough problem, right? And it's not one that's, that, that's easy to solve just by saying, we're going to build a bunch of infrastructure, because you're not going to build a bunch of infrastructure. The electricity problems, half of the electricity problem is going to get solved by building big infrastructure. going to be built out more generation, build up more transmission, build up more distribution. The other half is going to get solved by people adopting off-grid type technology, solar home systems, mini grids, and stuff like this. That's tough. That's challenging that I've worked on as well, right? But the cooking one is really where it gets very, very tricky, right? Because the other thing is a lot of people can see the benefit of, of electricity. You know, light, cell phone charging, I mean, they, they, television, they understand that benefit, right? The benefit of clean cooking, much, much harder, right? Oh, you want me to spend a whole bunch of money now so I don't get sick ten years from now? Wait a minute. <laughs> that's a tough sell, right? So, I mean that's why I think you know both of them are challenging in their own in their own way, but but they're both huge global priorities that are under underappreciated, right? Um, tell most people the fact that a billion people can't go home and flick a light switch and get and have lights turn on, and they they're stunned. Here in Canada, we love to camp. A lot of people love to camp. I like camping. I camp. One of the things I do for my—I I do in my classes—is I, 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 I take a poll. I said to, my, to my, my students, "Okay, how many of you go camping?" A bunch of them go, "Oh yeah, I go camping." And he say, "Okay, how many of you like, have a nice fire when you go camping?" "Oh yeah, I like have a fire when I go camping." "Okay, great. How many of you hate it when the wind turns and that smoke is blowing right in your face?" "Yeah, that's really bad." "Okay." Now imagine that every single day, just so you can get food on the table,
0: right? That's what we're talking about. That's that's really great. And that's a really foundational piece into uh, how different both both challenges are grand, but how different they are. And it's very multidisciplinary. Uh, Let's come to Shalu and come to India. Uh, I mean, so Shalu, let me brag a little bit about you. I mean, you... First of all, like there are very few women in Indian energy space, so it is it is a remarkable deal that you are uh, doing such great work in this space. Um, but coming to the the question that we we're discussing about energy access and progress, I mean you led a massive pan India survey called the India Residential Energy Survey 2020, which where we basically focused on understanding energy access and consumption patterns in uh, human ho- households can you describe like in detail about like what the survey was what the process was what did you find uh, where is this grand challenge uh, of electricity access and cooking access uh, like where does it stand in the indian context and what did you find
2: uh, thanks, Anteep. Uh I think part of the credit uh, goes to the fact that I had the opportunity to uh, lead, such, I mean, you know, design and lead such a survey. Uh, for our listeners, I would just like to clarify uh, that India Residential Energy Survey, or IRES in short, as we call it, uh, it covered nearly 15,000 households uh, across 21 most populous states in India. So we tried to make it a nationally representative survey, and it, I uh, mean, A team of around 154 enumerators uh, supervised by 40, uh, you know, regional managers and a team of six researchers was behind this whole effort. Uh, So they went to uh, nearly 1800 villages and wards spread across 150 districts uh, and talked to these 15,000 households for almost, I mean, you know, time ranging between 30 minutes to an hour to understand, you know, what is the state of uh, Cooking, electricity access in their homes. How are they using energy? Uh, how much are they spending? Uh, what are the challenges? Their satisfaction levels, uh, as well as you know, we try to cover more uh, futuristic uh, issues as well, like you know, are they were about smart prepaid meters. Are they were about energy efficiency? What are the challenges in accessing this, these as well? And and the objective of the survey really was to one take stock of. How far has India come when it comes to energy access? But also, you know, how prepared are we for the coming decade? Because I think uh, 2020 is really—I mean, 2021 is now a very uh, it's sort of an inflection point that uh, we can proudly say we have, you know, overcome many of the energy access challenges. Of course, uh, you know, there are a lot of concerns that remain, but we have to at the same time, while fulfilling those challenges, prepare for the new ones that we are shaping our demand while we are meeting people's demand in an efficient, uh, affordable, as well as sustainable manner. So that was really the context behind it. And um, I mean, the survey preparation, rollout and data cleaning, etc. spanned around 18 months time, I think. So it was definitely a very uh, steep learning curve curve for all of us. We were all trying to take inspiration from the work done by many of the researchers in India and outside to see you know, how we can design a survey. And this was one of its fine survey done at the national level. So, um, and, and for our listeners' uh, benefit, we'll be soon making the data public as well so that it can uh, benefit everyone. Uh, now coming to the other questions of uh, you know, what we find from the survey, uh, I'll, I'll again talk about electricity first and then uh, cooking energy because that does happen to be a more complex problem to solve for. Uh, so, on the electricity front, I mean, as um, as you find from our survey, 97% of Indian homes have now had uh, electricity connection, and this is a massive upturn, you know, from just 2001, for instance, when electrification rates were only 60%. So, literally, you know, millions of people have been brought out of darkness over the past two decades, and uh, they've been able to give away their kerosene wigs and similar polluting sources of lighting. So, I mean, not just... Uh, you know, use of biomass for cooking, but even use of kerosene or, you know, other suboptimal lighting products also affected human health, or even the quality of lighting that they were getting access to. And and this transition has been largely possible because of, you know, the massive public investment that's been happening over the years in extending the grid infrastructure to every local corner in the country. And uh, the Subhagya scheme, which was launched in 2017, it gave the sort of final push for household electrification under which almost 26 million households were electrified in two years. So it was literally electrification at an electrifying pace that was happening. And these drives did try to overcome, you know, three key uh, barriers to electricity access that, you know, earlier studies uh, had highlighted. That was uh, high connection fee, lack of infrastructure in the vicinity or, you know, various administrative challenges in getting the connection. And of course, uh, distributed renewables, as even H- Hisham uh, talked about, plays an important role. Particularly in, uh, I mean, that was a choice that Indian government take took that uh, we will electrify uh, remote rural areas where the grid extension was difficult with uh, DRE solutions. Uh, I mean, it could have been tried at uh, larger scale as well, but they decided to, uh, you know, grid electrify most of the households and limited distributed renewables only to, uh, you know, these uh, remote rural geographies. And I personally happened to trek in a forest, you know, uh, a few months back uh, in the district that I'm living in Rajasthan. And was pleased to find a small hamlet where, you know, each of the household had a small solar home system. And uh, and the I mean the beauty is of course these are these are very poor households and I think uh, it meets their most of their energy requirement at present and it's affordable for them because they don't have to pay regularly because that that happens to be one of the biggest challenges in uh, answering the remaining questions I mean how do you sustain the electrification gains that India has recently made uh, because we do see you know uh, in, even from our survey almost half a percent of households they. Um, they lost the electricity connection because they couldn't pay for it. Uh, and, you know, over the past uh, one and a half year, the pandemic would have worsened the economic situation for many households. And uh, even before that, we have been observing that many discoms in India uh, have very low payment rates from, uh, especially from newly collected households who do not have the capacity to pay. So, I mean, while electrification is done, uh, you know, a lot of discoms are trying to figure out this issue of how to make sure that everyone is able to pay. So this affordability concern remains. And of course, uh, the other challenge on electricity access front is, of course, supply. Uh, Here as well, I mean, we find on an average, uh, Indian household receives 20 hours of power supply on a daily basis. Um, I mean, I would love to uh, hear what Hisham's, you know, power cut number would be like, you know, in a month, how many power cuts do you get? I mean, we are talking about a daily power cut of almost five, four hours a day. Uh, And of course, in certain states, uh, you know, rural consumers have to deal with power cuts of even six to eight hours a day. And these disruptions are partly linked to the quality of distribution network, but also partly linked to the poor financial health of the utilities who are supposed to, uh, you know, shed the load during peak hours because they can't buy expensive power because, you know, they can't fully recover the cost of supply. So uh, going forward, these, uh, you know, the, the affordability challenge, the supply related issue, and of course, the uh, institutional governance structure, I mean, that can supply electricity in an efficient manner. Would I mean, these are the three issues that remain to be solved. Uh, coming to the cooking energy access, and uh, as Hisham also described, this is definitely a more complex puzzle to solve. Uh, here as well, India has made a significant progress uh, in 2001. Uh, more than eighty percent Indian households relied on solid fuels for cooking, and LPG was just a you know urban affair with sixty-five percent households in urban India using LPG. So India spent a, initially a lot of money on promise on promoting improved cookstoves and biogas plants, uh, particularly in rural areas. But often these programs didn't yield sustainable results, and most solutions went into dis, dis- disuse because of poor upkeep or Lack of service support so 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 the effort then you know was uh, you know sort of focused on LPG as well, LPG going forward uh, and here lack of distribution infrastructure, um, the high cost of connection and refills, as well as you know freely available biomass meant that most Indians were happily enjoying food cooked on chula. so I mean it was about how do you take LPG to everyone uh, to those who want it but also to those who don't want it. So over the past decade, there's been a lot of top-down push to promote LPG adoption through consumption subsidies and investment in expanding the distribution network. Under the Ujola scheme, again, which was launched around 2016-17, 18 million new LPG connections have been given. And again, a massive countrywide effort, which was accompanied by very strong IEC campaign, consumer engagement you know, panchayat, LPG panchayats happening in villages and, you know, people being told about the benefits of LPG and how to use it. Um, And our survey suggests that, you know, because of all these efforts that that have been going on, the share of households relying on polluting fuels has come down to 30%. So from 80% in 2001 to 30% in 2020 is again a big transition. And this 30% I'm talking about people who rely on biomass as a, um, primary cooking fuel. Uh, of course, there are more people who use it. You know, who stack biomass with their LPG, which is a phenomenon known as fuel stacking. So again, like you know, uh, the issues that remain in the cooking uh, uh, space to solve for are again af- affordability, availability, and that behavior change problem. Um, so there, are, you know, delays in getting a LPG referral, which is also quite costly. It's only. Rational for people to optimize their budgets by using freely available biomass, and of course, you know there is a strong preference for chula cooked food, uh, you know biomass cooked food in many rural parts. So, changing such age-old habits and tastes take time, and I think it it will you know it will slowly happen. I'm I'm sure. I mean, even our parents or grandparents had that preferences, but they have overcome them, and and I think it happens. Uh, you know, more and more you're exposed to the benefits of LPG, you know, and women's uh, agency in the household improves uh, and, uh, you know, they they find more opportunities uh, to work outside or, you know, there's a higher opportunity cost for their time. I think those factors come together and drive the uptake of clean fuels over. Uh, And just the awareness drives are not going to make the cut because um, I think research also suggests that awareness often uh, you know, sort of comes after people start experiencing the benefits of it rather than, you know, adopting a clean fuel because it seems good to adopt. So, um, yeah, I mean, in summary, uh, India has made, you know, visible strides in sol- resolving a good share of the supply side barriers. And going forward, I think a greater focus will be required in shaping the demand and making energy more affordable.
1: Uh, great you mentioned about women because that was something that I wanted to ask if we can address this question of energy access from the prism of gender because usually women are the first line of impact that they face because of lack of energy access, be it energy or be it, uh, you know, cooking uh, supplies. Uh, If you can tell us uh, from your survey, what was your observations across rural and urban households that lack of energy access has on the women folk? And during this time period that you have observed, that the several schemes have come in, has that led to uh, any kind of impact on women, how it leads to their development? Basically, if you can elaborate on the point that you just mentioned that, how it brings not only just a behavioral, but a social change also in the households.
2: Right. So I think, of course, I mean, any improvement in energy access uh, brings a lot of benefits to all members of the family, right, directly, indirectly. Women, because in Indian context, happen to spend majority of their time within homes. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, are of course most exposed to the lack of access, or you know, to the pollution associated with the use of biomass. So, so as of course, you know, if we are talking about temporal change, as electricity access has improved, as cooking energy access has improved, um, while I have not actually done any systematic uh, evaluation. Uh, and, I'm, and there, there studies are studies out there, but there's been a lot of, you know, benefit that women have reaped as well as children, you know, in terms of uh, ability to do more productive work at home, ability to, um, you know, study at, you know, for longer hours. And I mean, of course, uh, the benefits of these changes, um, they are spread over time and they, they are not easily visible within a year or two's time. So that's why they're difficult to measure through. You know the traditional RCT or randomized control methods often studies discount the benefits, saying that you know no visible method, no visible improvement is there. But uh, even from you know uh, personal experience of visiting, I mean uh, any every single you know unit of improvement in hours of supply is a uh, comfort. It's it's better health, and you know it's it's a. Uh, it's an opportunity to do something better with that, you know, extra electrons flowing to your house. Uh, from the gender dynamics perspective, I think, uh, again, if you are, if you don't have to go and collect uh, firewood, you know, from nearby places, it's it's a lot of reduced drudgery. I don't think it's fun in any form. While enjoying a, you know, bonfire can be a fun, uh, collecting firewood certainly isn't. And carrying it on your head, for instance, and and that too in scorching heat and you know horrible uh, extreme climate sometimes. So, uh, so those benefits are happening, and uh, we also see. A little, I mean, um, from our survey, we didn't very uh, you know we didn't focus a lot on the gender balance per se, but we do see that uh, there is also a shift happening in the way uh, the share of uh, firewood collection is. Uh, you know distributed with, within the family members so uh, earlier surveys and studies i mean the, this was exclusively uh, uh you know women's in the women's domain but we do observe you know more and more male uh, members of the family are also um you know taking the share and i think partly it's because of uh, the fact that biomass uh, availability is also becoming a bit of a challenge. So you have to go to farther distances to get it. So it's not necessarily uh, um, a benevolent change that we are seeing. But people have to also struggle to get biomass. And I think because and that that's one of the um, major drivers for LPG uptake in rural and peri sorry urban and peri urban areas because you know biomass availability is not there. Free biomass is not available. The cost is increasing. So people. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to spend more time uh, as well as money to gather that. So it's better than you use LPG. So I think it's a combination of factors which are changing uh, the women's uh, uh, well-being associated with energy access. Yeah, thanks.
1: Hisham, would you like to pitch in uh, what has been your observation uh, over the years of your research? What kind of social change in societies or in households we see with the availability of uh, energy access solutions available now.
3: I want to actually just start by by um, saying one thing, which is uh, that I have uh, such a huge amount of respect for the work that Cew does. They're one of my favorite organizations in India. Um, I, uh, I I'm currently doing in you know, a project. Uh, Using one of the prior versions of this survey with the india access survey uh collaborating with a couple of, of Shalu's uh, uh colleagues um at c e w but but have long just admired the work that c e w does and so for those of you who are listening um you know this is this is this is an organization you should be familiar with because I, I i feel it's one of the it's one of the premier it's it's one of the younger organizations in india working in this space but but one of the premier ones um and so i just wanted to say that you know just it's it's a great um uh, uh, pleasure to, 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 to be on this podcast with, with Shelly for that reason. Um, but with regard to, to the issue of, of gender, I think there's one thing that we kind of need to, to be aware of, which is that the, the change in energy access does have an impact, I think, on women's sort of day-to-day life to a certain degree. So certainly the, you know, if you're reducing the amount of time you need to go collect or the, the number of trips you have to to do in a week for collection of, of of thyroid because you have access to lpg and you can afford some lpg for example um, or if you're talking about uh particularly you know uh girls of a certain age where they're starting to do be the ones who are collecting but at the same time they're at school so that you know that that cuts into their education time so that has a huge kind of um uh, a huge impact and on the electricity side uh, as well you, you you start seeing a number of things where, where there's there's a potential for impact But we have to also be a little bit um, cautious because I don't think that in many cases, in many ways, those impacts can really truly be felt without a number of other changes happening within rural India. So, you know, uh, it's great if there's less time being spent on Fuel collection, but often for many women, that's just shifted into other housework. That's shifted into other care work. Sometimes it's shifted into getting a little bit more sleep at night, which is always uh, helpful because because let's face it, women have, have another poverty problem. It's time poverty, right? Um, there's there's so many tasks, and so uh, I think that that one of the reasons, in many ways, that the, the, and, and, and Shelly was, was spot on by saying that there's so many of these studies which don't find an effect of electrification, don't find an effect of clean cooking on this whatever measure this study happens to have. Well, often those measures are very, very narrow. They're often they're very traditional ways of measuring some impact like changes in income, right? Um, but they don't take into account the fact that you have to have all those other complementary things happening within rural India, right? Um, at the same time, right? So so it, it's it's not just about changing energy access. It's about changing access to, edu- to to educational opportunities. It's about changing access to economic opportunities, right? It's it's all these things which would then allow for you to be able... To, and, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. Those things can not happen in some ways in, until women have to spend less time doing these other tasks as well, right? But we can't see it in isolation, right? Um, and, and whether that's the cooking front or, or the electricity front, right? So one of the things that we've been challenged with is always thinking about how many households have access to this? How many households have access to electricity? And when it becomes this binary thing of like, oh, look, we have X number of households and and India has done a fabulous job on this. Absolutely. Right. The numbers have gone up and that is great. But until we see energy in rural India as part of a larger rural development program, right in which we're transforming rural economies and rural lives in ways that the people within those places want not imposed from the outside until we have that we're still going to continue to see at least in the short term very limited impacts on people's lives in the way that we we tend to think is going to happen when we we bring electricity to to the village right um it doesn't work that way right it doesn't work that way if you don't have you know, the ability to get your crops to market or, you know, or they spoil because you don't have refrigeration in the village at the same time, because you focused on electrifying households and not electrifying communities, not electrifying, you know, what people need at the same time. So that's just my caveat on all of this, whether, you know, uh, in in terms of thinking about this, this whole issue of impact on, on women, right? Yes, absolutely. But (laughs) <laughs> there's another really big you know piece of it that has to happen at the same time if we really want to see the impact
2: and just to add to what shaham said uh, i think that also underpins the the solving for the you know the the ultimate question how do we sustain the gains that we have made so far that uh, people's affordability to pay for energy is also linked to their uh, ability to use energy for productive purposes because unless they are also you know uh, their incomes are rising, They, if simply the consumption rise, they will not be able to sort of, you know, pay for it. So, and that's why, I mean, it will underpin all these issues, uh, the, you know, ability of women to uh, make productive use of their time and which in turn is linked to, you know, how much are we, cre- the kind of ecosystem we are creating in the rural uh, areas that supports the use of energy for developmental purposes.
3: Yeah, I mean, so, I couldn't agree more. In, in the book I, I alluded to that I wrote a number of years ago, rural Electrification, I had sort of a few big kind of um, conclusions in, in there, you know, kind of stylized ideas. And one of them was electrons are not development, right? Just having electrons is not enough. It's what you use those electrons for. And uh, one of the biggest factors when I looked at this, this is you know, this is going back a wise, now but when I looked at the success and failure of these distributed electric power system schemes in various places around the world. You know, one of the, two of the big things that were, were, were at play were, uh, did it, uh, did it facilitate productive activity? Um, number one, and, the, and the other one was, was there the ability to maintain and service these systems over time? So many of them were like, oh, we'll just go in and dump a solar, a solar system and walk away. And then five years later, well, guess what? The inverter's not working, and so that was a nice white elephant. Um, But you know, it didn't do anything ultimately, right? Because you didn't put into place the mechanisms by which you can maintain that that supply of energy. And part of that has to do with these things cost money. (laughs) It's just you can't get around; they cost money. The money's got to come from somewhere, right?
0: That's great! Wow, this is. I was just enjoying your back and forth between you two on on this uh, really interesting topic. So I guess one thing that I'm getting a sense of, and of course, I don't know anything near how much you know about this topic, is that electricity is somewhat more solvable problem, but cooking seems to be a much larger and grander problem. Um, So one of the things that I'm thinking about and if I think about the cooking ladder uh, and feel free to disagree and correct me if I'm going wrong here, uh, but you start with solid biomass and then the idea is uh, you can, people can have, you know, LPG and gas-based cooking and then the third ladder and eventual would be like clean electricity-based cooking. Uh, I may be wrong, but that's that's sort of my understanding. So if, if I were to think that this is this is the way, this is the transitional ladder. Um, How does climate change play into this? And uh, now this whole idea of, you know, no fossil fuel uh, finance in around the world, like, you know, Europe and Canada and a few bunch of other countries have come together and they're talking about that we will not fund uh, like fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, around the world and so on. So if I were to call this, no finance of new fossil fuel infrastructure or rather only financing clean infrastructure, how does this externality influence uh, the already grand energy access challenge?
2: Well, uh, I'd like to answer your question in two parts. Um, I'll come to the electric cooking bit a bit later. But let me take on the second question, which is like, okay, if the, uh, you know, if countries are proposing a blanket panel on fossil fuel finance, is it going to affect energy access challenge and uh, the fact is yes renewables are cheaper um, and you know developing countries are especially you know india's very in most certain terms uh, seizing this opportunity we have 90 gigawatts of renewables a fourth of total installed capacity which is and we have even grander plans of installing more renewables But the fact of the matter is, you know, these developing countries, they're rising, The energy demand is rising so fast that even with so much renewables, they will still need to rely on fossils to meet their demand, right? Because, uh, and then to give you sort of an example, like, you know, an average Indian household consumes just a tenth of what an average American household consumes. Uh, Of course, this is the extreme, but this massive gap sort of reflects you know, um, a different form of energy poverty. So from our survey, for instance, uh, 70% of Indian homes, they use electricity, electricity only for lighting, uh, running two fans, and just one television, that is it. So all of these households, of course, aspire to a better quality of life so that they can use electricity you know, for uh, reducing their treasury associated with cleaning their clothes or cleaning their dishes uh, and so much more, right? And all of this would happen only when they have access to cheap power. So, and, and the fact is, as we are pursuing energy transition, investments in renewables, integrating it with the grid, uh, the shift of high income households to the distributed solar, uh, while all of this is great, it costs money and it's making it difficult for bar utilities to service poorer households uh, through cheap supply, right? So uh, even in case of cooking, for instance, uh, uh, or or in case of just gas india has plans to expand its city gas distribution network and so that it can supply cleaner and cheap energy to uh, communities to for transport for uh, commercial as well as industrial entities now if finance is not available for uh, you know expanding such infrastructure it is definitely going to hurt the uh, developing countries objectives of extending energy access, not just to household, but for development as a whole. Now, coming to the second part of the question, which was like, you know, if electricity is the final ladder of cooking, um, yes and no, and we don't know for sure, right? So we are still exploring. Again, from our survey, we find that only 5% of Indian households use any kind of electric cooking as of now, and even half of them use it only for occasional purposes right and and the reason for such slow uptake till now has been and it's not that electricity is not available Electric, i mean you know most urban households have had electricity for uh decades but uh the high cost of electric stove compatible utensils the electricity cost itself and the most importantly uh ability to cook all the dishes that you want using those appliances it, it's it's um it's 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 uh, limiting the use of electric cooking in the manner that we've seen in the Western world, I think. And so while at least in the near future, electricity can supplement LPG, but it won't fully replace. So until that happens to put a blanket ban on uh, fossil fuel consumption in uh, expansion in developing countries, uh, I think it's partly hypocrisy.
3: <laughs> yeah. So this is the part of the conversation where I usually get myself into trouble, um, because I say things that uh, tend to um, annoy my environmentalist friends and colleagues. Um, So I'm going to answer a question about this whole question, you know, issue of climate change and its relationship to energy access by saying there's pretty much no relationship. And the reason I say there's almost no relationship is as follows. If we're talking energy access, I'm gonna distinguish between energy access in low-income countries or emerging economies from energy for broader economic development of those countries. I'm gonna start with the energy access piece first. I'm talking about energy access. I'm talking about the billion people who had access to electricity, the two and a half billion people who cook with wood plus the ones who cook with coal, okay. Here's a very very simple back of the envelope calculation any of your readers listeners can can do on their own if they have if they're so inclined I could if I could wave a magic wand I could hook up every one of those billion people that have access to electricity to a to diesel power as about as dirty as you can imagine okay and for that first access to electricity as Shalom noted what are people using for? They're using it for light, maybe a low-power television, maybe, maybe a fan, maybe, right? These kinds of things. It will add roughly somewhere around one and a half percent or so to global CO two emissions. If I were to take all of those households using biomass and I were to magically give them LPG and have them use it for all of their cooking needs in all these rural areas, and it's a fossil fuel, and oh my God, it's terrible. Another one and a half percent. All right, so we can solve the energy access problem at about 3% of global CO2 emissions. I am not concerned about it, right? When you think about it from an equity and justice perspective, it's just not an issue as far as I'm concerned. And there's other more sophisticated analyses that have been done and you, go, you can see these numbers and you know, fr- you know, the, the, they all sort of bear out the same thing, okay? I'll go even one step further if I'm talking about cooking and I'm talking about using wood for cooking in inefficient chulas or even a rocket stove, which I happen to have one sitting behind me for uh, reasons I was uh, from a previous colleague that I was just on. Well, sometimes that wood is unsustainably harvested, right? That has a CO2 impact. The burning of that wood in these inefficient stoves releases things like black carbon, that has a major climate impact, right? These short-lived climate forces are in fact things that people are very, very concerned about, okay? If you run the numbers, it's fairly clear that you could, you know, if, if the sustainability of, of the wood is not very good and, or even if you're just, especially if you're looking at the black carbon, you could replace all those wood burning stoves with LPG, a fossil fuel, and you would probably come out breaking even on CO2 or greenhouse gas impacts, right? it's just not there. Now, if we start talking about the development of economies, the growth of industrial infrastructure, the growth of the commercial sector, the growth of a middle class, the eventual movement of these energy people who who need basic energy access into a more uh, consumptive lifestyle in years to come. Now, okay, fine. We can start talking about there's potentially some climate impacts to that, right? But I agree entirely with Shalu. It's hypocrisy to say, we're gonna stop financing fossil fuels in in Sub-Saharan Africa or in India or, or these kinds of places um, because of the climate impact. And, and for a whole host of reasons. One is, uh, yes, renewables, this is where I say, this is where I please my environmentalist friends, renewables are great. There's a lot of reason to deploy renewables from the small scale in the villages through to large scale into the grid, lots of great reasons. Climate is not always one of them, right? Um, cost is certainly one of them. The health impacts effects, uh, effects of the of the particulate matter is one of them. All these other things are are, are, are there, right? But the fact of the matter is, when we're talking about many of these economies, there is going to have to be at least for some period of time, almost certainly some ex- some continued modest expansion of. Fossil fuels, right? Um, and for countries that have used up way more than their fair share of the carbon budget, to turn around and say, "Oops, sorry, we've used it all up, none for you," right? Um, or, or even worse, to say, "Well, if you go down that route that we went down, oh look, climate change is going to happen, and it's going to be the worst for you," right? Because let's not forget, it, you know this weaponizing almost of the climate impacts when it comes to the mitigation question is really terrible right the idea that if you are in sub-saharan africa or if you're in india where climate impacts are going to be particularly bad so therefore you shouldn't use fossil fuels right because we've used up the carbon budget you know there's a problem that doesn't that doesn't compute right so if we have a limited carbon budget to go we should we really need to have a conversation about who gets priority access to that carbon budget And I'll go even further on the hypocrisy front. I'm sitting here living in a country which bought a fossil fuel pipeline, right? If Canada, which have heard rumors of joining this little coalition of countries saying we shouldn't be financing fossil fuels in low-income countries, is buying pipelines and does not, as far as I'm concerned, despite our net zero discussions here in Canada and despite our, our, our recent climate action, have a clear path to reducing the fossil fuel industry in this country. There is a really hard sell there for me to say that that our government should be saying anything about fossil fuel investments of the type that are needed for developing economies.
0: That, that's really great. I mean, I love both your answers. Shalu was a bit more polite, but Hisham just... Oh, you, you know me, Sandeep. I have no... No problem speaking my mind. <laughs> that that's really, really great. I mean, one question that I want to touch upon and I would love maybe Shalu, you can go first uh, and talk about it in the context of your survey or more broadly and then Hisham. I mean, lots of people love sort of this small scale systems and think about these systems, but is that really aspirational? I mean, yeah, sure, it could work for a little while and it's fine. But at the end of the day, you know, you need energy for growth, right? Like you need good solid, like sources of energy, which, which is affordable, reliable, but you need it at scale f- for much larger industrial development. So what do you think about, uh, these small scale systems? Are they a aspirational and they, are they m- meeting aspirational needs and B? uh, is that something we should promote and forget about, you know, the overall larger sort of like development, real development, if I could call them.
2: I'll keep my answer to this a bit short, um, but let me try to answer it this way. I think uh, in the context of energy access, when we look uh, at distributed renewables, the, the, the suitability and their aspirational value Varies from context to context, right? So um, it depends on what is the kind of household you are talking about. What are the energy needs? Um, what kind of systems can you make available for them, and really cheaper than the the alternative that they can avail of, right? So, so in the context of India, because uh, you know most places have high population densities, extending the grid often made sense, right? And and then where it was difficult. The distributed renewables given. but if we are talking about, of course, I mean this this aspect we have discussed. But I think this question was, uh, I mean, more suitable a little while back when you know the technology wasn't that advanced. The costs have come down significantly. We have much better battery storage coming up, and we are seeing their prices also going down. So even now, you know, even in India, we see uh, you know farmhouses or even, you know, big houses turning towards rooftop solar. I mean, it's just a matter of what you call it, rooftop solar system versus solar home system versus distributed renewables. I mean, this is a a terminology thing, but I mean, people are turning towards it to cut down their costs, but also to make sure that they have supply when the grid goes off, for instance. So so I think the aspirational aspect is constantly being shaped by the evolutions in the technology and pricing that we are seeing. Um from our survey, we find that, you know, the awareness about uh, solar home system is significant. I mean, it's, uh, it's rising, but it's not, I mean, always resulting into uptake because of course, you know, there's a lot of inertia. If you don't immediately need a system, you're not going out to figure out how to get it installed on your roof. And there are, you know, net metering related issues, you know, that some administrative barriers are there. Those are being resolved. But I think going forward, uh, distributed renewables are will also play an important role in making our you know power system more resilient. In the sense, I mean we know you know centralized systems have their limitations. Uh, if a grid goes down, everyone goes down with it, you know, for whatever hours. And our demand is becoming variable. Our uh, supply is going to become more variable. So having more distributed you know uh, systems spread across, I mean it's good for the system. But um, and I think you know. Uh, and it's difficult for us to imagine right now, but going forward, the way we interact with energy, we uh, you know interact with each other in terms of energy or trade uh, energy. I mean, all all of these aspects are you know shaping up, and I think the society will change going forward. So, DRE potentially would become an integrated part of our society rather than you know uh, just being an aspirational commodity. So, I'll let Hisham you know share his more perspective
3: on this. Yeah, I I mean, I I, I largely agree with you. I think that the way that we see a lot of renewables happening in places like India right now is uh, as what I would say is a transition technology. The question we don't know is what it's going to transition to. So one pathway is that a lot of people get access or some people get access through solar home systems, microgrids, mini grids, these kinds of things, and that's a temporary solution until the grid is even further extended at some point in time into the future, and then they will no longer, because they're, you know, uh, their incomes have gone up, they can afford more electricity, it becomes worthwhile to extend the grid even further and further and further. And so it's a transition simply until eventually a full grid electrification, much like we've seen in, in if you go back decades in history for, for European economies or North America or these kinds of things. There's another potential way in which it's a transition technology, um, which is more to what Shali was talking about, in which you have an a, a mixed system um, of centralized and decentralized that are actually working together in many, many ways, meeting different types of customer demands, depending on what the customer needs, was willing to pay for. And, you know, because let's let's face it, you know, here in North America, for example, looking in the United States and places like that, we're seeing a rise of distributed energy for a whole host of of reasons and a whole host of purposes uh that is it's not that we don't have a centralized system right it's it's there right but what we're seeing is there's, there, there's these niche areas and they're and they're growing and this, so we're, we're seeing people installing solar systems on on their roofs for a whole host of reasons we're seeing uh industries we're seeing uh larger commercial buildings installing these kinds of things and and part of that is is resilience and reliability part of that is cost part of that is uh, maybe even sort of climate driven uh you know the whole, whole so so it's possible that for places like India the transition actually moves more into that kind of of system and maybe even more seamlessly in, in, in some way so I don't know where that which way it's going to which way it's going to transition the one thing I will note also though in thinking about um, the fact that you know, globally and certainly in, in India, there's going to be a portion of the population that gets access. If we meet SDG seven, the Sustainable Development Goal seven, on universal access by 2030, right? You know, kind of half are going to get it from the grid, and half are going to get it from these various off-grid, mini-grid, solar home system type technologies. What's really interesting, and we've been working on, uh, Vikas Mangani, who's was in the lab uh, of mine, and, and just recently defended. So, Doctor Mangani, I'm happy to say, um, has been working working on this with me and some colleagues at KTH and other places, is a really interesting question, which is um, in many parts of the world, uh, and India included, the grid system is subsidized. The tariff you pay does not cover in many places, especially in rural areas, the cost of actually delivering that electricity. On the other hand, in many places also, renewable off-grid technologies are not subsidized necessarily. So let's say we reach 2030 and we have everybody with universal access, but some people got subsidized grid electricity and some people paid full cost for a solar home system. And these people got subsidized electricity, which is 24-7 and from the grid and that higher power capacities they can do more with. And these people get a hundred watt solar home system, which is limited, and they paid for the full one. That is fundamentally a justice question. It's an equity question. Right. What is what does universal access mean? Right? Whose responsibility is it? Right. So when we talk about what you know, aspirational technologies, when we talk about you know this mix between the decentralized and, and, and centralized systems, we also have to get into who's paying for it, what are they getting for it, right? What does it mean for SDG 7? Um, and and in particular in my group, we, we tend to take sort of a justice ethics um, and and equity lens to thinking about those problems.
2: If I may uh, add a little bit uh, more to it, I I think one aspect that we haven't discussed uh, today is uh, the point of energy safety nets. And, you know, it just sort of uh, reminded, it came to my mind as we were talking about, you know, how are we going to, you know, do justice to people who have different access to different forms of um, electricity solutions. And I think, Right now, of course, you know, the subsidies are linked to uh, the consumption that you're having uh, from the grid connections. And of course, there are, you know, some subsidies given to, at least in India, for rooftop, you know, solar system as well. Uh, of course, I mean, there's no certainty, you know, what how long both of these will continue. But going forward, I mean we will definitely need to rethink the way energy safety nets can be designed and they could be de-linked de- to the kind of energy solution that a household has. And I think that's something that could, uh, will be very important because, uh, you know, and then of course the question of how much energy subsidies is enough uh, also keeps on changing, right? Uh, probably a few decades back, just having a light bulb uh, would have been good enough to ensure that there's no more energy poverty. Uh, as the, you know, the energy services that a society uses, they increase the the base minimum that you want to ensure everyone in the society should have also keeps rising. So now probably if I were to define um, energy safety net or our energy poverty line, it would be everyone should be able to use at least lights and fans, right? Or probably a TV, Even probably a decade down the line when even, even more hot, we include a fridge also in the definition. So... Uh, so that keeps changing, but I think uh, it's important that we all keep in mind the role that these uh, safety nets play in conti- in ensuring that everyone has access to them. And, you know, this question is has become very, very important in the current context, because uh, even last year, we saw a lot of, you know, non-payments to the DISCOM's power utilities rising in India because people, you know, lost their jobs or their incomes uh, dropped and they were not able to pay. And now we have a second wave, and of course we're just praying that it goes uh, down soon. Um, but but the but it would just simply reinforce the issue that we saw last year. So it's important that you know that countries put in place these safety nets uh, for the vulnerable population, so that uh, you know at least the bare minimum needs are being taken care of, no matter what you use.
1: That brings us to our last question. It's great that Hisham already has mentioned about SDG 7, Sustainable Development Goals or SDG 7, established in the UN General Assembly 2015, aim at ensuring access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all by 2030. So now we have a decade to achieve our SDG 7 goals. I want to ask you both if you were to make the policy to achieve these goals, what are the top three steps that will be your focus areas? Uh, you can talk either about cooking or electricity or both. Uh
3: interesting question. Um I will start by uh saying that the, the number one thing I think for me is not a concrete, like it's you know it's not this kind of subsidy or that kind of subsidy or m- money invested here or money invested there. Those things are necessary. I think for me, and one of the things that I've been trying to push in the various work um, that I've been doing with, with, with Vikas and with Devyani Singh, another uh, former uh, student in the lab, Dr. Singh, and, and Dr. Abhishek Kar, um, who was also in my lab, um, is that uh, we can think about this as a social contract. This is the way I like to think about it, that, that the government has a social contract with its people energy is part of that social contract, right? That, that, that access to energy is part of that social contract. Now, if you accept that premise, then, then you start to think about, okay, how to organize around that? What are the mechanisms for meeting that social contract? Um, who are the agents of that social contract? It doesn't have to be the government, right? But the government has to be, figure out the way to allow those agents to exist and operate Right. Um, And so, you know, in again, I'll go back to sort of the North American European example. We often would have monopoly utility territories. They're they're private monopoly utilities that have a certain territory, but they're regulated. Right. They were the agent of the social contract from the government to the people of having universal access to to electricity. Right. Same thing can happen in India and, and other places in terms of thinking about that goal. Right. So that's sort of to me, it's, you know, the first place that starts is is, is the principle of that social contract and how you are going to meet it in a way that's equitable, um, justice based, right, Um, and deals with the fact that you have people who can't afford that. And whether that's electricity or that's cooking or whatever, right, that's where I would kind of, that's the first thing I would start with. The second is I would say, um, you know, there's lots of reasons that subsidies are, you know, considered to be harmful, et cetera, but subsidies are not bad in this space. You need them to be smart. You need them to be transparent. You need them to be uh, effective and appropriate, and all those kinds of other things. Um, but we have to, to you know, we have to push back against this idea sometimes that you know subsidies are are inherently uh, distortion. They are. They do distort. We want them to distort. <laughs> In this case, we want them to distort the market because the market is not working to meet the needs of people. Right. So we need to have those subsidies in place and how we do that. You know, we have to, we have to figure out how to, how to, do that better. I think there's ways in which India has done that really well and not so well. Right. The consumption subsidy is a blanket to everybody. They know that, and then having people have to voluntarily give it up. Not so great. I mean, great that it was a consumption subsidy, but obviously it was very inefficient because lots of people were getting it. That didn't need it. Right. The PMUI UI, which has clearly been very effective in increasing the numbers of of households with access to LPG. Not that they're necessarily always using it. So there's more work to be done on the behavior change front and on different types of subsidies to help with that. But, you know, so the second piece of that to me is just, you know, we need to allow for the fact that this is a public policy goal for public, both private and public good, and it's okay for government. And it's not like this didn't happen in the United States or Canada or Europe right? Go back to the 1930s, go back to the rural electrification program in the United States and the development of the co-ops, right? And this wonderful organization, uh, you know, the National Rural uh, Electricity Cooperatives Association, which I'm a huge fan of, you know, uh, still around, right? Um, Because there's still co-ops around in the United States, right? And go back and look at those lessons of, of, you know, direct support for that goal, right? Because you, you know, the resources are there. The amount of money necessary to solve the energy access problem from an investment perspective is roughly about 5% of global energy sector investments on an annual basis. The money's there, right? Just gotta figure out how to get it. That'll be my, my two cents. Right. Yeah, I no, um,
2: truly agree with. The- Kisham said and uh, i like the way you put that framework of social contract and you know who will be the right agents to actually implement the same um and and let me like you know share my thoughts on more operational elements i guess because the framework is there and i think uh, and and i speak from the perspective of uh, india again like you know what we need is uh, filling the gaps that remain you know there are there are people who I mean, the population is rising, of course, and there are people who are still without electricity. So we need to think, uh, you know, and make available context specific and need based solutions for those households. I mean, uh, because these are really the ones that have sort of been left out of the schemes coverage. So clearly it's not, you know, one size fits that will work for them. Secondly, I think we need to definitely, you know, um, across the board, strengthen our institutions, uh, those which deliver services and those which regulate those who deliver the services. Uh, And and this is because uh, that's the only way to make sure that we are investing uh, and upgrading our infrastructure, you know, in an efficient manner, constantly monitoring the quality of services that we're providing to the consumers, but also making sure that, you know, uh, part of the values being recovered while being while taking care of the vulnerable consumers. Uh, thirdly, I think what we need, you know, uh, especially in the context of developing countries, is to you know figure out ways to link the how um, you know sort of bring it to people's consciousness that how energy use is linked to the environmental and local pollution issues because going forward i think uh, that will be important as you know the consumption's rise and they're going to rise very fast in developing countries uh, so that people are more amenable to managing their demand embracing energy efficiency uh, which i think also sits you know very closely with uh, within the energy access space because it it allows people to use more services with lower expenses but also allows you know the suppliers to meet the demand without you know, generating too much. And, and finally, I think, uh, and this is the thing that we've talked about, that uh, energy access that we've been talking about is mostly for consumptive use. And to make sure that people are able to meet their aspirational needs, we need to constantly invest in creating opportunities for productive purposes. And that's the only way to actually create that virtuous cycle that can uh, decouple uh, energy access issue from the income poverty issue.
3: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on that on that last point. I think you know this emphasis that we we've continually see on how many how again I said this before you know how many households how many households how many households how many households has really led us astray I think in many ways right because it's 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 you know it's created this energy access on this side and energy for development kind of over here um, and not you know thought about. What are the the bigger forces at at, at play, and and then it gets to, to the whole question around you know around the environmental side of things. I mean, and the renewables. Like I said, I, I don't think this whole question is a matter for this basic energy access problem, but it is a big deal for the energy, for development piece of it. And so, thinking through how we look at what those pathways are, um, with a development first lens on it recognizing that there's lots of really great reasons to go for those renewable energy technologies in that development first approach but it gets torqued if oftentimes if it becomes sort of the climate first approach and then development is an ancillary benefit right um, you know that's where we get into i feel we get into some 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 troubles and more more so when you start moving down to the energy access space
0: Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think that's a great way to sort of end this fascinating episode.
1: This was an enlightening discussion. A big thanks to both of you for joining us today in this very important and special episode. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you.
0: For more information about the podcast, visit us online at www.101reporters.com slash podcast slash the underscore India underscore energy underscore hour. You can also reach out to us on social media and send us your comments and suggestions. My Twitter handle is at Sandeep Pai with a double I and Shreya's Twitter handle is at Shreya underscore J.